lights, please? And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Don't you just hate it when people celebrate Christmas too early? I mean, I, I find it extremely annoying to walk into a mall or a department store and find Christmas decorations up and everywhere, uh, but it's before Thanksgiving. Or uh, I find it irritating to receive a flyer in the mail advertising a Christmas special in early November. I mean, if you're like me, then it feels strange to... A read a story, the, to read a story like that, uh, this early in the season. It's, it seems strange and it just kind of seems wrong. But, but would you be surprised to find out that reading the Christmas story in October is actually closer to Jesus' birth date, his actual birth date, than when we read it normally in December. In fact, for over 300 years, uh, the church refused to celebrate the birth of Christ. Uh, early, one of the early church fathers, a man named Origen, said it felt like it was improper uh, for the church to celebrate the birth of the Christ, just like pagan religions celebrate the birth of their pagan deities. But a number of origins, contemporaries, just disagreed with him. And so when Constantine in 336 A.D. established Christianity to be the Roman Empire's favored religion, the church saw an opportunity to commandeer a pagan festival known as the birth of the incomparable son, unconquerable son, celebrated, that's S-U-N, celebrated on December 25th, with what they hoped would become the greater celebration of the sun, S-O-N, celebrated on the same date. And that's how we came up with December 25th as being Christ's birthday. Isn't that interesting? But you might remember in the book of Luke, that it's not difficult to determine exactly when Jesus was born. In fact, in the book of Luke, we learned in uh, chapter 1 and now in chapter 2 that, well, Jesus was, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, we we, we learned, um, I am. Oh, no, by the way, okay, I, 
no one knows for certain uh, exactly when Jesus' birthday is. Uh, in fact, the most credible theories about Jesus' birthday uh, tie his birth to the actual birth of John the Baptist. And then in the book of Luke, the past couple of weeks, we have learned that John the Baptist's father, remember, it was Zechariah. And Zechariah served in the temple under the division of priests known as Abujai. Now, while Zacharias was in the temple, uh, an angel appears to him, the angel Gabriel, to tell him that his wife, Elizabeth, will expect a son. And Elizabeth conceives. And then we discover, as you read further in Luke, that six months later, the same angel, the angel Gabriel, appears to Mary, informing her that she will have a son as well. Now, nobody knows for sure exactly where, when Jesus was born, but it it is easy to predict when Zechariah served in the temple. In fact, uh, it tells us in 1 Chronicles uh, 24, verse 10, that this division of priests known as Abu Jai actually served in the temple in the 9th and 10th week of the Jewish calendar year, which converted over to our calendar would place his service between the 13th and the 27th of June. Now, we learned in the book of Luke that six months later, angel visits Mary. Mary finds out she will conceive, and she makes a trip to visit Elizabeth. So, six months after Elizabeth conceives, Mary and Elizabeth get together. That puts their meeting date sometime in the latter part of January. And then it follows that nine months later, Jesus would be born, placing his birth actually in the latter part of September and the first part of October. So reading the Christmas story, I mean, today, is actually maybe a lot closer to Jesus' actual birthday than when we traditionally read it on December 25th. Now, I don't want any of you to panic. You still got 57 shopping days left till Christmas. So you can relax this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, as we take a fresh look at what is a very common known story. Let's begin in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Assyria, or Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now notice the story begins with a decree from Caesar Augustus. Now Augustus is not his real name. Uh, His given name is Gaius Octavius. He happens to be the nephew of Julius Caesar. And when Caesar was brutally assassinated, remember Etu Brute? Well, uh, Quirinius finds out he's named in Caesar's will as his adopted son and sole heir to his vast fortune. Well, over the next few years... Uh, 
Cornelius' rise to power was kind of ruthless. But after securing the throne at age 28, well, he gave himself the title of Augustus, which means majestic or highly revered, and the Senate also gave, raised him to the status of God. So once in office, Octavius really surprised everybody. I mean, he ended up becoming a wise administrator, a capable organizer, and a great builder. And during his reign, he secured peace throughout the entire Roman Empire, which allowed Christianity to spread throughout the whole Mediterranean region. In fact, it was said of Octavius, he said, He came to Rome made of brick, and he left it made of marble. So we discover in just the opening sentence of the Christmas story that Augustus, a man who claimed to be God, issues a decree that intersects the time and space of the God who has come to be a man. Now, notice this census. That was important to Rome. It helped them determine how much revenue they could expect to receive from their occupied territories. But this census really sets in motion a series of events that end up forcing a young carpenter named Joseph to travel 90 miles to his hometown of Bethlehem. Now, women were not required uh, to travel and register for this census, but uh, Mary, his fiancée, was expecting a child soon. And apparently he didn't want to leave her behind in Nazareth in the midst of the chaos that was created out of her unwed or out of wedlock pregnancy. In fact, has it ever felt like life is cascading out of control for you? Well, that's when we get to discover God loves entering our chaos to be there with us. And to guide us through it. In fact, it's the chaos of this story that we get our first glimpse of the sovereignty of God. We begin to see that this decree by Caesar Augustus, man's decree, is actually God's design. And through it, Mary ends up accompanying Joseph to Bethlehem. Have you ever noticed how powerful people uh, tend to make powerful entrances? In fact, I was reading recently about Queen Elizabeth. Um, Did you know when she travels, she has to take 4,000 pounds of clothes with her that consist of two outfits for every conceivable occasion, including her death. She also uh, requires or travels with her uh, 40 pints of plasma in case there's a medical emergency. Uh, She has her own personal hairdresser that comes along two personal valets, and a host of other attendants. In fact, she requires that white kid leather toilet seat covers must accompany her for her convenience. In fact, on one particular trip, one of her valets lost one of ten jewelry boxes that must come with her. And it was estimated that in that box alone was over $100,000 worth of jewels. I mean, powerful people need a lot of stuff. So, so you'd expect if the almighty God 
the Prince of Peace were going to visit our world, he'd make his entrance in a raging whirlwind or a devouring fire. But instead, almost inconceivably, we learned in the first chapter of this book that the Ancient of Days, the creator of all things, shrinks himself down to become a small ovum, a single fertilized egg, barely visible to the naked eye, that multiplies and divides until a fetus begins to take shape, which grows cell by cell over time inside a teenage girl. The sovereign God in the womb of a teenager. What an astonishing way to enter humanity. But I also want you to notice what else God designed. I mean, look at verse 4. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to get to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because... He was of the house of the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lay him in a manger for there was no room for them in the inn. Now, we've got to remember this is before the day of Travelocity and Expedia. I mean, travel in Israel was dangerous, and finding accommodations were difficult to to find and keep. In fact, I remember in 1977 when Patty and I were married, I wanted to surprise my bride with a romantic honeymoon at Disney World. Now, my intentions were pure. It was a big mistake. Big mistake. I mean, we we got married really the first week in April, which happened to be smack dab in the middle of spring break in Florida. And we discovered Orlando was overrun with inebriated college students, and Disney World had lines three and four hours long. And then to make matters worse, when we went to our hotel, I walked up to the desk, gave him my name, the The attendant said, well, Mr. Daly, I'm sorry, we don't have a reservation for you under that name. Well, I confidently brought out my confirmation number and gave it to him. He entered it into his computer, studied the screen for a moment, turned immediately and walked back to the back room, shut the door. He was back there maybe 15 minutes. And when he came out, he said, oh, Mr. Daly, I'm so sorry. We, we don't have a single room available. In fact, I've called around to all our hotels in Orlando, and uh, there is no vacancy anywhere. So I kind of leaned into the counter, and I motioned him to come closer. <laughs> and I won't pay to hear this, but I looked him in the eye and said, you need to understand. This is my honeymoon. Now, do you want to go tell my bride that you've lost her reservations and she'll have to sleep in a car tonight? Well, he just kind of stood up straight, turned and went back to the room again. (laughs) 
back there maybe 10 minutes, finally came back out with a big smile on his face. He said, Mr. Daly, we have your room as our mistake. I mean, it'll take a few minutes to get it ready, but let me go in and check you in. He checked me in, and we sat and waited for maybe 30 minutes, and then he came and gave us the key. Now, to our surprise and delight, the room was on the first floor right next to the pool. It was beautiful. And when we went and put the key in the lock and opened the door, uh, that's when we found out that this was the room they stored all their pool supplies. Now, now they'd moved the pool supplies out. They were gone, and they'd moved the king-size bed in. But there was the lingering scent of chlorine. I'm here to tell you, that had to be the most sanitary night Patty and I ever spent together. (laughs) Now, you got Joseph facing a similar situation here. Uh, I mean, Luke tells us there was no room in the end. But this word end in Greek, but the word in in Greek is the Greek word pandion. The word Luke uses here is a different word, katalumai. That word refers not to an inn or a hotel, but to a room in a house, probably a guest room, in the house of a relative. So there was no room, guest room, available for them. Now, archaeology reveals that homes in and around Bethlehem at this time, often, because it's hilly, a hilly area, had caves at the back of the home where uh, the residents would maybe keep their prize oxen or donkeys to keep them safe and keep them from being stolen at night. And the guest room, as you can see in the picture, is in the front of the house, Uh, So Mary and Joseph probably arrived late, and the guest room was already taken. So their relatives did the best thing they could. They offered them shelter in the cave in the back where they kept their livestock. I mean, not realizing that they would be hosting the most momentous event in human history. And notice that Luke tells us that Mary goes into labor, and she brings forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and she lay him in a manger. Now, the swaddling clothes here are really strips of fabric used to wrap around the baby to keep it warm but also keep it secure. They're wrapped tightly around the baby. And and the manger is not talking about a stall for donkeys. Uh, It refers to a feeding trough, maybe a stone or wooden trough, that they laid the baby. And if you think about it, that would be a convenient place to lay a baby if you're going to give birth to a baby in a cave. So that was kind of convenient. Now, can you imagine what Mary and Joseph are feeling right now? I mean, you think about it. They they have uh, suffered nine months of embarrassing pregnancy. They've been forced to leave their home in order to make a grueling five-day journey on foot camping out in unsafe territory, arriving in Bethlehem, only to find that their accommodations are not what they expected, but now being forced to bed down in a cave for donkeys and oxen. And now, of all nights, you go into labor. 
And there's nothing you can do about it. I have gone through natural childbirth classes with my wife, Patty, and I've concluded I don't think there's anything natural about childbirth at all. (laughs) That that is, if delivering a bowling ball through your nostril is natural. (laughs) In fact, coaching childbirth is like, well, coaching an avalanche. I mean, it's coming whether you're there or not. So Mary has no choice. She goes into labor and she gives birth to a baby boy. Now, after the birth of a child, there's usually a birth announcement. And no one would have expected the way God announces his son's birth. They wouldn't have expected the way he did it and to whom he did it. Look at verse 8. It says, And now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were greatly afraid. So an angel is sent to make a declaration. Now, the fact that an angel was dispatched to a group of scraggly shepherds would have been out of the realm of possibility in anyone's thinking. And that's because, well, shepherds were considered a very low occupation in um, Hebrew culture. Uh, They were considered just below that of beggar and just above that of leper. But not only that, they, they were disliked by the religious establishment because they were unable to maintain any kind of ceremonial cleanliness. I mean, taking care of sheep is a dirty business. So they were restricted to the outer courts of the temple. Uh, but they were also considered unreliable and as a result forbidden to give testimony in a court of law. But worst of all, they had a reputation of confusing mine with thine, so to speak. And not only that, they stunk. They stunk. Now, did you notice in the text the light that shone around them was called the glory of God? That that phrase is a reference in Judaism to the Shekinah glory of God, the visible manifestation of the presence of God. Now, you remember the glory of God was in the cloud that surrounded Mount Sinai, and the glory of God was reflected in Moses' face when he came down off the mountain with the commandments. In fact, God permitted his glory to be enthroned uh, in the... Ark of the Covenant kept in the tabernacle and then placed inside of Solomon's temple. And then God was forced to withdraw his glory when Israel was overrun by the Babylonians and ransacked the temple. But the prophet Habakkuk has promised that the glory of the Lord would return to the people of God. For over 500 years, no one has seen the visible outshining of the brilliance of the presence of God until now. 500 years of silence, and then the glory of God appears to, of all people, these shepherds. I mean, is it possible they were remembering what Moses said, that anyone who looks upon the face of God will die? Maybe that's why they're so afraid. 
Notice verse 10, it says, And the angel said to them, Well, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Christ, the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you that you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in the manger. So the angel appears to the shepherds and he tells them, I haven't come to minister death, but life. I'm not coming to you with bad news, but good news that will bring joy to all people. By the way, did you know that phrase, good tidings, used here in the text? is translated every other place in the New Testament as good news. He's talking about the good news of the gospel. And it's good news for all people, even shepherds. You see, social status is not important when it comes to God. Neither is age or race or wisdom, fame or education. In other words, he's saying there is something in this universe that's longer lasting and more satisfying than anything we can try to get for ourselves, accumulate for ourselves. He's talking about having a right relationship with God. And did you notice the three words the shepherd uses to describe the babe? First is Savior. It means deliverer or rescuer. But the question is rescue from what? I mean, too many in the first century thought a Savior would be sent to the nation of Israel to rescue them from Roman occupation. But this Savior, the rest of the New Testament says, rescues people from the worst possible danger that could confront them. The penalty and power of sin and the worst possible disaster in their future to spend eternity separated from God. And notice the angel calls him the Christ. It means anointed one, Messiah. It means the God who became man. I mean, Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years, has been expecting a great prophet, a sympathetic high priest, an eternal king. And now he's come, and the ultimate evidence, he is the Messiah, he claims to be, will be that he will rise from the dead one day. And then finally, he's described as Lord. It means sovereign. It's descriptive of his strength and his power. It refers to his authority. In fact, this baby lying in the manger has authority over this angel who's come to make the announcement. And he also has the authority to to deliver God's people from God's enemy, Satan. Now, now this angel, uh, well, he tells the shepherds they're not going to find this Messiah where they think they'll find him. I mean, they were probably thinking Herod's palace or maybe the Temple Mount. Instead, they'll find him where no one expects. In a nearby town, Bethlehem, less than a thousand inhabitants at this time. And he'll be wrapped in strips of cloth. And he'll be laying in, of all things, a feeding trough. And then noticed immediately, verse 13, it says, And there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I mean, you think about it, God was quite gracious to these particular shepherds. 
He first sends one angel to break the ice before he sends an army of angels. By by the way, do you know that phrase, heavenly host, refers to God's army angels of angels? Now imagine if they had come forth first. I mean, the shepherds would probably have died of a heart attack. Now you gotta got to know that this is a strange army God has sent. Because this army is not sent to declare war. This army is sent to proclaim peace. I mean, notice what they sing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, you need to remember these angels have been with Jesus since their creation. In fact, they were there when God created mankind. They watched as God created you and me. They cringed as man decided to rebel against God. Now, they know God has a plan to rescue mankind, but there's one thing that's beyond them, one thing that they can't comprehend. Do you know what that is? It's the grace of God. In fact, that phrase, goodwill toward men, is represented by only one word in the Greek text, and it's a gnarly word to translate. In fact, this word refers to God's grace as unmerited favor. And so these angels, can you see it, are singing about something they will never get to experience. The angels can only admire what God has done, but they can't completely understand it. Why? Well, it's because they never chose to rebel against God. By the way, that's why Peter in the book that bears his name says these are things in which angels long to look. They're curious about it. Now, it's through God's grace, his unmerited favor, that this baby is going to bring about peace to all mankind. Now, there is one thing these angels do know. They know that whatever God's cooking up, it's got to be good. So these warrior angels just break out into song. And as quickly as they appeared, they disappear. Look at verse 15. Notice what happens next. So it was that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's come to pass. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they... They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, these nameless shepherds, these dregs of Hebrew society hated by religious people, notice they respond to the angel's message in pure obedience. I mean, notice they left immediately. They went and searched for the baby. And when they found the baby, uh, they disclosed to his mom and dad what they had experienced. Now, I think these shepherds, as smelly as they might be, are really a great example to follow. Uh, Did you notice they respond immediately to an opportunity? I mean, no sooner than the angel has disappeared, they looked at one another and said, let's go. And they left in haste. It means immediately. I mean, they took advantage of the opportunity 
to join with God in what he's doing. They didn't procrastinate. There was no hesitation. They acted immediate. I, mean, I fear too many times, instead of paying attention to the door God opens up in front of me, I tend to have my focus on my agenda, what I'm doing, what's important to me. Or if I notice the door, I end up procrastinating and I miss the opportunity to join with God in what he might be doing. In fact, I was on a flight, golly, about a year or so ago. I was coming back from a weekend of speaking at a marriage conference and I was dead tired. And and frankly, the last thing I wanted was a chatty seatmate. And that's what God brought across my path. Well, he started asking just all the typical questions. Finally, it came around to, um, so what do you do for a living? Well, instead of exploring to see what God might be doing here, what doors he might be opening up, I, I mean, I just focused on my agenda and just dismissed what the guy was saying and just kind of wound up the conversation so I could shut my eyes. Isn't that sad? I'm a pastor. I shouldn't do things like that. And afterwards, I mean, I was convicted. And I remember driving home to the house thinking, God, I'm so sorry. I was so focused on my agenda. Forgive me for being selfish. Thank you that you have dismissed that from counting against me. Now, I think it's interesting These shepherds are not permitted to give testimony in the court of law. But these are the guys God uses first to tell about his son's arrival. So, I mean, what did they tell? Well, they simply shared their experience. I mean, notice how Luke puts it. They made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. Now, they didn't have any formal training. They didn't have special communication skills. Uh, They just simply talked about their experience. You know, one of the reasons I think that we procrastinate in joining God in what he's doing is we think that we have to have special formal training to talk about God. But did you know you don't need formal training to tell a friend about God any more than you need medical training to tell a friend about a good doctor? If you're a Christ follower... Simply talking about what God is doing or has done in your life is sometimes all it takes to bring a conversation to a friend that will eventually lead to them wanting to know the same God that you know. And notice what happens when the shepherds talk about what they saw. It says that those who heard it marveled. I mean, it doesn't take much. It's simply talking about what God has done for you or maybe in you. Father, we marvel at what you have done here. Uh, And we desire to adore you as being the God who became man, the, the humble king, the father who is faithful to his children even when we are faithless toward you. Father, would you help us recognize the doors that open in front of us and, and then give us the courage to walk through them by joining you in what you're doing. It's in Christ's name. Amen.